So are you ready for the end of the world? <laughs> Probably not something you're asked every day, right? Oh. Amen. Well, if you're not, there are companies out there that can help you be ready. There is a company by the name of... <laughs> I'm sorry, I tried to be serious about this. Oh, my heavens. A company named Vivos can help you and your loved ones get prepared. The website says, whether we want to believe it or not, we are on the cusp of an increase in number and magnitude of events that may, in the twinkling of an eye, change the world as we know it. And then they list a range of possible cataclysmic disasters. They include Armageddon, plagues, a solar kill shot, a supervolcanic eruption, major earth changes, killer asteroids and comets, economic meltdown, and then man-made threats, nuclear explosions, reactor meltdowns, that sort of thing. But here's the good news. For a mere $35,000 per person, you can co-own an underground shelter in one of their airtight, fully self-contained, impervious complexes designed to survive any catastrophe. Good news, huh? Their website warns that, that millions will perish, or worse yet, they'll struggle to survive. But they also boldly promise that Vivos is your solution to write out these catastrophes so that you may survive to be a part of the next Genesis. They also offer this reminder that it wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. <laughs> Can I throw up now or should I wait and do it later? You ever watch those shows, the Doomsday Preppers? I, they're fascinating, uh, to say the least. I, I guess I, I have a lot of trouble when there are those on the show that begin to quote all kinds of scripture and claim to be believers. I, you know, I have this crazy notion, forgive me, it's a little old-fashioned, that we as the people of God should live with boldness and confidence for our Lord in this world, no matter what happens, because He holds the future in His hands. And because he holds the future in his hands, we can live with confidence. We don't have to live with our heads in the sand, but we can live with confidence. And as far as I know, he's never rescinded the great commission that we go and tell others about him. And how much more necessary might that be as things in our world seem to get darker and darker? More troubled all the time. Ever spend any time reading the book of Revelation? It's all about the end times, of course. And if you have spent time reading it, you know that it is a book that is full of, of mystery. It is very difficult to understand. And that's on a good day. The name of the book is a literal translation of the Greek word. And it means exactly that. It means revelation. But, but what's interesting is, is the... The word and its pronunciation in the original language will sound familiar to you because it comes from a Greek word. The word is apocalypsis. 
And of course, from that, we have created the English word apocalypse. And apocalypse, of course, always has to do with some sort of a prophetic revelation or unfolding, and it's linked with a disaster. And that's the book of Revelation. It is categorized as apocalyptic literature. There is, there's disaster of enormous proportion in the book of Revelation. And truth be told, we really have very little idea of the time frame. And that's evidenced by the fact that every generation of believers since the first century have been convinced that they're living in the last time. <laughs> exactly. I've always felt that apocalyptic literature, like Revelation, does not make for a good sermon series because there is, quite frankly, so much that cannot be clearly known, cannot be clearly understood. And, and of course, I've said that to some of you over the years. You'll never hear a sermon series on the book of Revelation from me. You know, we, we talk at Applewood a lot about one of the, the fundamental rules for biblical interpretation is, is that we, we compare Scripture with Scripture. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. And that's difficult to do with apocalyptic literature like Revelation because it's pretty much one of a kind. Or there's just no other place that we can go besides a few references in Daniel uh, where we get some comparisons. It makes for an incredible study where there's time for lots of spirited discussion and uh, possible interpretations for the symbols and the imagery. Having said all of that, I'm going to make an exception for the first three chapters of Revelation. I want to... uh, I want us to explore together where the Spirit of God speaks into the lives of the seven churches, the beginning of Revelation, to whom that apocalyptic message is given. The reason is because weeks ago, as I began to pray about our next sermon series, which is what I always do, uh, pray and, and seek the Lord and, and, and just always say, it, it, is, it is your word, we are your people, it is your time. Where do you want us to go? These passages begin to come to mind for me. And, and I guess it really does make sense. As I, because of course, my initial reaction is, Lord, I don't want to go there. But when you think about the, the first three chapters in particular, the, the messages to the, to the churches, it flows it flows along with where we have been. You remember back in May, we, we started talking about being a healthy missional church with, with Brent Thompson who came and walked some of us through this, this workshop together called Veritas, the truth, telling the truth about ourselves. Are, are we in fact uh, a, a healthy and a missional church? So we then spent 12 weeks. Boy, the time flew by because we were having so much fun, right? You didn't realize it was 12 weeks. We spent 12 weeks on studying what it means to be the body of Christ. And what does that look like? The body of Christ informs us of how to be a healthy church because we are the body of Christ. And a healthy church is a church that wants to be like Jesus. And so in our activity together as God's people, we want to be like Christ. Being like Christ as his people in this place is to be a healthy church, 
What does it mean to be missional? To be missional is to be on Christ's mission. We are about what, what Christ wants his church to be about. And, and so the, the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3 of, of, of Revelation are really all about that. They're churches that existed in the first century. They are churches that contain both commendation, uh, certainly a lot of exhortation and some correction, and they're from the Lord Jesus. And that is timely because the church is his. The church does belong to Jesus. Uh, We never have to question whose church is this. What is this church about? Well, this church belongs to Jesus, and it is about the mission of Jesus. And Jesus has something to say about the health of his church, as you would expect from the one who is the owner of the church. So that's what we're going to hear in these messages to the churches. As we look a little bit more closely, I think we gain some insights. There are some very specific things, and then there are some general kinds of things. Insights about what Jesus wants from his church in the world and certainly what he doesn't want from his church in the world. And that then moves us in the direction of becoming more and more a missional church, which is the church that is about doing what Jesus wants his church to do. Seven churches located in what was at the time referred to as Asia Minor. Today it's in the country of Turkey. They were the original recipients to these letters that we're going to spend some time going through in the next weeks. What I think is really significant, really important, is that the format or the structure of the language the, and, and, and the letters is such that, that every church that is listed received the entire letter. So that there are specific directives given to a particular church but they also hear the directives that are given to every other church. That's the way that, that letters often worked in the early world. You know, the, the, the author would, would pen the letter and that it would be sent out and it would be passed around and it would be shared. And so, so the folks who are listening to the letters, they're not the only folks in this particular... And, and oftentimes in, in, a, in a, a church is referred to as, as a region, we look at the New Testament, you know, the letter to the Galatians. Galatia was a region, and so it's quite possible that there were a number of churches that would have read that letter. So it's, it's reasonable to assume that the seven churches that are named were certainly the recipients, but there were probably more churches certainly in, in those areas And because the structure is that way, we can then, I think, jump to a very reasonable conclusion that says, well, it was for those churches, it was for other churches, because that was the pattern of the day, not only in the first century, but it was for churches in every century and and everywhere. And so that includes us, Applewood Community Church. There are things in these letters that are important for us to hear and to give attention to. It's important to remember that the book of Revelation was not written to confuse people, to frighten, to frustrate, or to to entertain, although it's probably done all of those things for many of God's people through the ages. Um, 
we're going to stand together in a few minutes and we're going to read the last half of the first chapter. We will hear John say that the book was written to show his servants, his being Jesus, to show those who belong to him. It's the word bondservant, which means that someone owns this individual. To show his servants what must soon take place. What must soon take place. So, what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like for you to just pretend for a few minutes that you are sitting in one of these first century churches and you are hearing the introduction to this lengthy letter that has come from the Apostle John. And it starts out like this. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. The revelation from Jesus Christ, the language there allows for a couple of interpretations from him, as in it is, it is coming from him, it is authored by him, or it is also in the sense of ownership, it belongs to him. This revelation that is about to unfold and to be read to all of these believers in these churches, all that happens is under the ownership and the control of Jesus. The language there allows for us to read that both ways, and I think that that is very He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those two are always inseparable. We'll hear those terms again in just a couple of minutes together. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Boy, there's a couple of statements right there. You know, when, when he says that he's supposed to, it's, it's to show his servants what must soon take place because the time is near. Talk about a statement that refers to God outside of time. 2,000 years ago, these statements were made. And God's people are still waiting. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, we, we sometimes get confused when we hear that. Seven spirits. It's, it's probably most likely a Trinitarian formula. The Father and the Son. And some older translations would render that the sevenfold spirit. That is the, the spirit of, of completeness. The spirit who who brings to completion the message and the power and the warnings of God. 
and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's such an important statement. Ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's stand together and read the rest of this chapter. Together. I, John, your brother, companion in the suffering and kingdom, patient endurance that our hours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, both what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. You ever think to yourself, when Jesus put his hand out and laid it on 
John's shoulder and said, do not be afraid. Do you suppose John just thought, that's really easy for you to say. Yeah, that sense of awesomeness. Okay, neighbor question for you, having read those words of introduction. How is this vision of Jesus different from the memories of Jesus that John would have had? Okay? How is this vision different from the memories of Jesus that John would have had? And a second question, why? Why do you think it's so different? Go ahead. Ask your neighbor. In case you've forgotten, the Apostle John was with Jesus. Okay? Okay, we ready? What do you think? How is this vision different than the memories that... that 180 degrees. Okay, okay. John did the only thing that he could have done. And it's a wonder that he didn't die. Yeah. What else? What else did you talk about? Interesting. Okay. A picture, possibly, of the pre-incarnate Jesus. Definitely the picture of Christ that we are to, to grap- grapple with now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sure doesn't appear to be. Okay. Do you remember when was probably the last time that John saw Jesus? Probably the ascension. Probably the ascension. He was probably present in the room when Jesus appeared and seemed to just kind of walk through the walls in what we might think of as sort of this this ghost-like essence. Well, I don't know. Thomas wasn't there uh, the, uh, the first time. So I, I don't know. But, but it's probably reasonable to say that, that John was there, at least for some of this, probably there when Jesus ascended. And so John had seen Jesus in his resurrected body. But he hadn't seen this Jesus. He hadn't seen this Jesus. You, you look at the description. He had a robe that went clear down to his feet and a golden sash. That is, that is imagery that is probably coming out of the Old Testament. It is the high priestly position. And that golden sash, that means royalty. That means, that means power. Hair on his head, white as snow, eyes blazing like fire in the first century. Those who were aged with white hair... They were considered the wise ones. They weren't spurned and rejected like we often do of our elderly in today's society. They were esteemed because of of who they were. Eyes blazing like fire. That That is burning through everything and seeing clearly. Feet like bronze. This is an interesting one and it's important for for where this is happening. In Psalm 110, you've probably read these words. It's a messianic psalm. It says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And you've seen a couple of stories perhaps in the Old Testament where a king would conquer another king and what would he do? He would make him lay down and he'd put his foot on his neck. That is the ultimate picture of triumph. Feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. 
strengthened and purified by fire. The ultimate strength, the ultimate symbol of conquering. Voice like rushing waters. Well, John was, John was on an island when he wrote this. You know, and he heard the surf breaking all day long. And just that noise, that sound that couldn't be ignored. Among the lampstands. Someone like a son of man, which is a description that probably comes right out of Daniel's prophecy in the Old Testament. Listen to what Daniel wrote. During time, when Jerusalem had been sacked, when people had been scattered, most of them carted off to Babylon as prisoners, living in a foreign land, far from their homeland, and far from what felt like the promises of God. Daniel received this vision in the night. He said, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of a man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led to his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every land would worship him. His dominion is his everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. John is being reminded of who's in charge. Of who it is that control the events of the world. And he's being reminded that someday... Everything is indeed going to be made right. John, get this message out of the churches. That is the message of revelation. Given to God's people, his church, he is in control always, no matter how bleak things get. And they will get very bleak. There will also be an end to history. As we know, where evil is banished once and for all. And their righteousness will flourish. But, but, that's an important but. Until that time comes, the Lord of the church expects his church to live faithfully and righteously in the midst of the unrighteousness. About. George Bible, the 20th century Scottish pastor, who is quoted as saying that the greatest criticism of the church today is that no one wants to persecute it because there is nothing very much to persecute about. You see, the drama that is revealed about Scripture is in a big category drama of good. Versus evil. It is the drama of God and his goodness headed against the powers of the darkness and of evil. It is the struggle of those who are the people of God living out the values of God's kingdom in a world where people want to live for themselves. And when the light of God's kingdom comes shining into the darkness of lost humanity, there is often a response of anger and pride. The church, Jesus Christ, is a part of that foray. We heard those words of Jesus earlier that John was certainly reminding people of. 
Christ said, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. There is a spiritual battle laid out in clear terms by Jesus. Church that Jesus calls into being and empowers is a church that by definition stands against the powers of the darkness. And that means persecution. So I want to encourage you as we move into these weeks together to read messages to the churches often. Try to make time to do that. Read through them often. So just become more and more familiar. There are messages for us. And there's a line that, that I want us to, to remember. Important line. Can we put that one last line up there? Will you hear this? And in every letter, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, that means those of you who don't have ears, you don't need to worry about this. Whoever has ears, we've all got ears. And then as the people of God, indwelled by the Spirit of God, if that is true of your life, then you have the Spirit of God in you, giving you ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Down to the ages. That message is true. So directive is to hear all the messages. There's something in each one as we move our way through the series. So as we move ahead, let me just close this morning with, with I think, three guiding truths for us as we, as we read the messages, as we seek to understand uh, what those messages meant to the people who originally read them and what they mean God's people throughout the ages. The first truth is this. The one who John saw standing among lampstands, he's still standing among lampstands. The one who was standing among those seven churches, he still stands among his churches today around the world. We must never forget, and forgive me if this sounds silly, but we must never forget that the one who is the Lord of the church is not the landlord of the church. He doesn't just go once in a while, I want to check. He's there all the time. It is his church. He indwells his church. He is present by his spirit. And he is very much at work in the life of his church. And he is concerned about what is going on in his church. He is looking for obedience for a church that is living the way that he wants his church to live. It is his church. He has a right to respect that. So the question that the church needs to ask, the question that Applewood needs to ask all time, is what we are doing, pleasing and honoring, our Lord Jesus. That needs to be the question of our lives, both individually and collectively. It is what we are doing, pleasing and honoring our Lord. It is not a matter of preparing for Him to drop by sometime, kind of spin the place up so it looks good. He is here constantly, and He has expectations. 
second truth we need to remember that will guide us through this is the vision of a powerful and authoritative Jesus. That one that we did for that I said that John is struggling to describe. I think, quite frankly, that needs to be the vision that we have. And the one that motivates our desire to please and honor him with obedience. And like John, we need to hear the words of Jesus. Don't be afraid. But the dog gonna be scary. That's the tension that we need to live with. I'm here to say it, and forgive me if this is disrespectful. No more than a nice guy. But the people of God, they are serving the one who is the risen Lord. I hope I don't offend you if I say this, but you know that bumper sticker that says, My boss is a Jewish carpenter? It's the dumbest bumper sticker ever made. If it's on your car, tear it off. Because boss means someone that you work for. Jesus is not my boss. Jesus is my Lord. And the Lord is someone who I surrender my life to. And he's not a Jewish carpenter for peace's sake. He is the creator and the ruler of the universe. And when he returns, he's not coming with a hammer and nails. He's coming to make things right. And I suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that we need to have this vision of Jesus motivating us in our lives every day. Because he is the one who is coming. And he is the one to whom we have surrendered our lives. And he is the one, this ruling and conquering Lord, that has expectations. And his expectations ought to motivate us to obedience. Third truth, third truth. The entire message of Revelation can be stated in two words. Victory and reward. No matter what your particular eschatological slant is on the book of Revelation, whether you're pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill, pre-trib, post-trib, trib or when you're being entry like I am, everything is going to pan out in and I'm confident the one who has me in his hand. Whatever your eschatological perspective is, it all comes down to God wins. God is victorious. And he will be victorious, and his people who are faithful will be rewarded with his presence and his blessing for all eternity. Good reminder, this is not heaven. Are you worried to make it so? Lost cause. But this is not heaven. That doesn't mean that we don't give ourselves to bringing the reality of heaven and the truth of Jesus a little bit closer to lives that are broken and downtrodden and so, so hurt. We give ourselves to that. Because we know that that's just a glimpse of what is in store for those who surrender their lives. So, so praising me, you need to come up. I need you to shut up. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.